I'm Minhaj Jina and you're listening to Voices of the City, a project of Broad Street Radio. It's sort of a representation of like two completely different worlds that I, I, I often find is not represented when people speak of colored, the colored community. Mm. You know, especially my mom's side of the story. Like they tell one story, they tell a story of forced removal and a story of um, gangster, almost like a suffering Olympics. Always about how bad it is versus like people that are much more grounded. You are listening to Voices of the City, hosted by Minhaj Jina and produced by Volume. The six-part series will explore race, history and resistance through hip-hop culture in Cape Town from the 1980s until today. In this episode, we're in Grassy Park with Emil YX, who formed the crew known as Black Noise. In 1949 in South Africa, the apartheid government began one of its most violent and evil projects in history. It began compartmentalizing education based on race. They did this so that they could ensure that kids who are not white would receive an inferior education and to reproduce a cheap black labor force. It removed knowledge of self from black people. Many decades later, in 1982 in Grassy Park, Cape Town, a young and defiant educator by the name of Emil Janssen refuses to accept what he was taught. Emil was a revolutionary. He had ambitions of becoming a teacher so that he could critically engage youth about social and political issues. He wanted to revive the knowledge of self in communities whose entire identity had been stripped from them after decades of repression. This led him to form a hip-hop crew that would inspire resistance across Cape Town. He called it Black Noise. Emil b-boyed and spoke truth to power. He went by the name Emil YX. Welcome to Voices of the City, my brother. It's a heavy intro, yeah, okay. <laughs> Before we start the discussion, can you describe where we're sitting right now? The apartheid regime uh, sort of places this area in a, I suppose, probably like a middle-class community. But like the, the heritage and history of it is like the people that were here had a link to First Nation people that they didn't know about because um, of the flays that was close by and as well as um, people from that was moved out you know so my dad was originally from Mom Estate and before that he was from Pukap and then my mom grew up here so this is mostly farmland when she was young but because of the the history of the place there, there were still white people living near Zikoflay and they still do ironically and and it, it had that um, that history of you weren't allowed to go there and so I remember clearly like the kids saying, whenever they got close to the flame, this guy would like point his gun at them and like, yo, you, you, you don't belong here, you know. So the 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 divide of of apartheid is embedded in the area as people who moved out, people who actually traveled from elsewhere to live here, like my mom's father that came here years ago. So two, there's two contrasting histories of like my dad being forcibly removed with the people from District 6 and families and woman statements and that history. And my mom was more grounded in this community since, since she was a kid. And so like my, my history is much more grounded than a lot of people. Like a historically mixed type of area in the sense that it's not the normal story that is told by our community. There's a story also about like how we used to, <laughs> we used to get milk by the, the they'd bring they'd bring milk 
and you'd put your milk bottle out with the, with the money in it outside on, on the one of these uh, fences. And the morning it would be like the owner would have delivered the milk. And like that was, there wasn't an issue about it being stolen. So like my generation remembers that as well, you know, of like living in a community where you were part of a, of a community, it wasn't seen as a township. And also like the idea of, I, I know anyone would give me a hiding in this, in, in, in this neighborhood. Like, a, like the community took care of us. Mm. Like you will catch on crap, the Oma will shout from the stoop, hey, what not you? Like, you know, change. like you, you were <laughs> like a, a ADT, <laughs> ADT version of like the community watching what's going on. You know, different generations would take care of, of, of the community, mm. you know. And so, so I, I, I vividly remember that because I, I was a naughty kid. I suppose that I, I look at Cape Town differently because of that history, you know. And I also I carry the, what's the word, um, like the brand of being from Grossy Park. Or like anyone who's from Grossy Park, Fairways, you feel the scene is like uppity colored community so it's like this divide within our community um and how you perceive because of where where you grew up yeah you know so it's a it's a strangely awkward place to be from i mean you you also grew up here in the 70s 80s i mean at the when the party state was at its most violent there were literal wars in a yeah. lot of the townships in cape town Joburg, Durban. people were being burnt alive bombs going off in the Joburg cbd do you think that Grassy Park was shielded from a lot of the violence of apartheid at the time. That information traveled, you know. I, I vividly remember being at school '76 and like, like the teachers telling you, "Yay, there's like a movement. Everybody go home. Like everybody has to go home because there's like this in in the teachers' mind. Then also the principals were like, like they were almost the um, the gatekeeper for white supremacy to a great extent. So they would mm. say stuff like, yo, there's the Swat Khafar type of coming towards the, the schools. And then like kids were forced to like, yo, go home. Yeah. So what was sold to you and also like the, the education system was very like, I mean, it still is like white, you know, the content of what's in the education mm. system. And so like, I remember coming home, my brother was like, yeah, why, why are people saying this? Why are they thinking like this? Because their teachers weren't saying what our, our teachers at the school were saying. You know, and then years later when I'm in high school, I'm like fighting that same fight with my parents because my parents were like, this is never going to change. This is how it's always been. People have been killed. Like, stay away from mass rallies. I mean, you should never tell your children to stay away because they're going to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Irrespective of what you say. So I, I attended quite a few. Like, I think one of the biggest ones was the one in, in Weinberg where like a lot of kids were in mean, the Weinberg 7 were taken at that, that event. You know, so it's like the contradictions of this idea of like being shielded and like mm -hmm. you going out and actually making the if the, it's not that difficult to be exposed to it. I don't think it was that it shielded us as initially because we were younger. It was okay, mm -hmm. like you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't fathom what was really going on, and and then when you got older, it's like yo, now you know really what's going on. So there's no way you can avoid it. You know, and. Um, yeah, that I actually wrote the song about that uh, that day, like years later. Uh, it's, it's funny how that happened because the the Swedes were asking us about when we toured Scandinavia, asking us about the politics of of like what was going on during apartheid. And I told that story, yeah. and and because we were in this community for like about three weeks, 
uh, in Sweden, the kids started crying because I was like vividly, you know, we tell a story, we tell it like very, <laughs> like we lived, the, we were there, but we, we carry that energy of the story. And so the kids started crying because I was saying like we were shot at, you know, these are like kids that probably, a lot of them never seen a gun really. And then, and I was sitting, and I was sitting in, uh, in, in the, the place we were staying, it's like, you I gotta write this down. And it like flowed out, it's, the song was called Butterflies Fly By. Like I was sitting in the crowd and the speaker was late and we were like singing protest songs and this butterfly was flying over the heads of the kids and I and I remember I was like, yeah fuck it, my bro, this is like freedom. And then as it flew over, it's like poof, 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 poof like the sounds of tear gas being shot into the school courtyard and like light is sitting fast because the speaker had just arrived the speakers were smuggled in and, and then suddenly this this, this uh, security police guy plain clothes walking grab the bra walking out points the gun at us like the moment the gun is pointed at you feel like an eternity i mean it's 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 it's, it's that anyway so i wrote the song about it years later someone forgot a video videotape in the box of tapes that we um that we sent them to do a documentary about black noise i was like yeah whose tape is this and they're like nah I don't. so i played the tape and it was footage of that day so i just i just put the footage over the song yeah and, and also kids who saw it are like yeah I, I thought colored people weren't involved in the struggle like kids of of of, of some of the people who on it they say like their parents never even told them about this day yeah. until they saw the video and they're like almost like cracked so it's again like to the long way answer your question is like you have to be under have been under a rock not to be affected and how, how did these experiences as well as the experience of growing up in grassy park the experiences of mom and dad influence your path towards making hip-hop music yeah um i think because of like where we were um and this is often also not like people don't realize this that a lot of the first people involved in hip hop were like people who were b boys, right? And 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 b boys, b boying is very vi visual um, stuff from TV. And the same in my case, the first experience of being able to access footage was via recordings, you know, of stuff that like you had your video on. <laughs> we were already dancing, so we were like just looking for people. You have a cassette in, and anybody who saw anything would just record it, you know. And so I often want to like almost check the way people tell stories because mm -hmm. the way they, they, they place hip hop is often in like, you know, it's a ghetto expression. It's like it's from the poorest of the poor, you know, and that's a, that's a white narrative. The other white narrative is like it's from nothing, like nothing comes from nothing. It's like nothing is almost like an insult to black history, you know, because black people who were slaves came from Africa, so they didn't come from nothing. You know what I mean? So hip hop came from that heritage. And in the same way over here, that's the stereotype that they like to share. It's like um, now they, uh, the museum, the hip hop museum is saying like the first person to rap was this guy Senyaka, which is not true. Like the first memory I have of someone rapping, and this is going to be controversial, was Leon Schuster. Oh, if you're talking commercial, yeah. right? Because then they weren't attached to the culture. Mm -hmm. The same with this guy Senyaka. He had access and he just rapped like an American style thing. And 
at least Leon Schuster was rapping in Afrikaans. <laughs> so and people hate when I say this, but like if you're going to use the commercial version of the history, then you're going to obviously have to be honest about all of the commercial um, history that took place. And so influence that it had was that my parents were already involved in the community. My dad uh, coaches soccer. And so he coaches in places like Hughtown and like in Manenberg and in Overpark. And even though like we from we live here, he, he, he still taught in the same way I learned from that to teach Lightis wherever I found Lightis to kids b-boying, mm. you know. So we, and I didn't realize this until like I wrote this book, uh, Reconnect the String, that the history that you remember sometimes is, leaves out your family's influence, yeah. or, which is the first influence on you. Like you learn from your parents and, and not what they say, but what they do. You know, so my mom's a school teacher, my dad taught soccer. And so like it's ironic that I like, studied to be a, uh, like mostly a phys ed teacher. And so, so, so those experiences, I think, changed how I look at stuff. Like, I was like, how do I teach parts of the culture so that it can grow versus like, you know, it's mine. I'm going to just keep this to myself. And so again, like, I understand that this ability to go beyond like this box of like where you're from. If someone shows you that you can do it, then it's easier than like someone talking to you about how it's possible, you know. So I think because my dad and uh, he is like traveling and um, playing soccer, an alternative world was it was was real. Like I could see that. Like you didn't you didn't have to do what the box said. My mom and the other end is like a <laughs> like the teacher. Like you you gotta you gotta have something to fall back on. Right? That that mentality in our community. So like obviously I studied to be a school teacher. <laughs> you know, because that's what I wanted. I wanted to teach. It's only afterwards I realized that the teaching wasn't necessarily there. It was, you know, I could teach in a different way. So I think my parents and like being in Grassy Park, like this, Grassy Park as back then was like a silence type of, you know, like a, a space to come back to where there's, you can actually spend time thinking. I think that sometimes people don't realize the, um, the benefit of that, you know, like with there's space to think. I mean, and, and, I only realized afterwards when like hanging out with Brasov and we just playing that sometimes it's difficult to find space, you know, silent space. And within the work that I do is to take kids to the mountain, take them to the flay so they can have those spaces, you know. So it's like it influenced me in, in, in a, a lot of ways to, to try and recreate that for, for others to have this, the, the silence. You know, like one of the first things that I said, like, yo, can you write a rhyme about the good stuff about L Lavendale? Circle, they were like, yo, because we saw it was automatic in not only uh, Cape Town but South Africa. Mm -hmm. And this is even Buddha, they always want to speak about what's wrong about the country, you know. So it, it takes a lot for, for when someone tells you, just make a note of all the good things in your community. They were like, yo, and then eventually they wrote this the song um, called Huyanis Good News. In a Vandagsinis, where the cops are flattered, as they are not good news, for man to conduct. It was a rustic day, a mooi warm weer, and the voorspiel, for more, is no good news. And they broke down like people in the community who planted gardens, people who had like selling herbs in the community, people who were, you know, always there for them to bring them to the to the like mobile library. And I was like, yo, and they, they were shocked that all these good things exist that they never speak about, you know, um, because of the, the history of, of, of like, we always, we were taught to talk bad about 
where we're from, yeah. you know. And so I had to unlearn that. <laughs> took a while because this is how the community is reared, like to speak about what's wrong, right? Because the media pushes that always. What's the, the one narrative, the one story about the gangs and the violence. And so people just repeat that. You, you didn't start off writing rhymes. No. You were b-boying for a long time yeah. before you became an MC. And it seems like this is, well, was at least a natural progression yeah. for hip-hop practitioners at the time. Yeah. You first become a b-boy and then you get into graffiti <laughs> and you get into MC. Yeah. Is this the case? Yeah, I think back then. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I, it was also because of, like, how do you put this? Like, most people, they, they were telling you that your, your English was, like, sucked, basically. And... In your head, you saw people who wrote as like this group of people. And and like well, the same with dancing. Dancing was again like seen as almost like feminine, you know. But b-boying was like, yo, this is powerful. This is like hardcore dance, right? And so it placed you in a different space. But a lot of us, like we were almost shy to, to speak out. Like we were, it was easy to dance because you didn't have to say anything. Like you could just express yourself using your body. But then as you, the more you were confronted with, the more you felt like this need to say something. You know, even you were on stage and people would speak on your behalf, like someone grabbed the mic and like, you know, just like to, he's like, yeah, this was not getting it right. He's like saying some shit, got nothing to do with us. You know, as it was like, almost out of necessity, you felt like, yeah, I'm going to grab the mic now and say this. And, it, and I remember clearly, like, it took a long time to be able to do that, to feel confident enough to take the mic. I mean, initially, just rhyming was cool because, you know, it was rehearsed, right? But the pieces between the song, like, I was like, shit, I mean, but what am I going to tell these people? Because that was sort of the freestyle, unrehearsed part. And so it took a while for you to be comfortable to speak the way you normally speak and to feel like that what you had to say was almost, like, worthwhile. Because you mean you come out of like a party where they were forcing you to think that you didn't have shit to say. And so that progression was almost like a, a lot of the b-boys from back in the day were like being confronted with like, yo, I, I got to say something, shit, I got to say something. And hence the, the progression, you know. And then also because of the culture, like people, I mean, I, I, I was doing um, Eris Lot of graffiti, you know, dabbled with like DJing, you know, you, you did a bit of everything. And then as you, would, I mean, if you were performing, there was always a mic there. So you like end up beatboxing or like, you know, you try something else because there's a mic. If the opportunities arise, then like obviously people like, yo, I'll take that, give it a try, you know. So a lot of people from back then would try all of the elements of the culture. Those who understood it, there was an entire, like hip hop wasn't just rap, you know, which has unfortunately changed since back then. Um, I think also money made it change, you know, so people like just want to rap because they want to be famous and make money. You know, whereas back then it's like you fell in love with the whole culture. And also being from Cape Town, <laughs> you, you, you quickly realize that it's not really uh, economically beneficial to be an MC because you, you need to go to Johannesburg. There's just no way you can survive like being strictly from Cape Town and just staying here. Like generally that was the progression, but it also prepared you for performance, I think, to, to a great extent because you, you, you're using your body and then like once you take the mic it's almost an extension of and and also what you say now is embedded right so because i come from a b-boy background if i tell the artists in the community something then i need to show them because i come from a like a physical uh, expression like a dance expression 
and like a dance is to think and you don't even say you just bypass the saying you go straight to showing right so now when i say something i almost feel like forced like i gotta go do this in the community i have to act on what i'm saying you know and i mean if you think about mcs now they're like living the fantasy world and it's cool nobody demands they do <laughs> what they say but because of our background uh, you find like both like with black noise and prophets of the city and bvk there was community outreach you know, and Godessa as well, you know, so because of, I think this link to, historically in Cape Town, the link to dance or, or the physical expression, there was like, I have to do something. And what inspired the formation of Black Noise? Yeah, um, I mean, Black Noise initially was just like the uh, remaining b-boys that we were hanging out. And, and it, the group was first called the Furious Floor Rockers. It was Jam Rock Crew, uh, Cape Town City Breakers, guys from there. Supreme Rock, these all b-boy crews from back in the day, and then Pop Glide crew. Like we do shows together. Like we we just like, you know, you'd, you'd copy someone's uh, Beastie Boys. <laughs> you know, you just rhyme verse from to, to just to intend, extend your performance so you get paid. Because we were doing b-boy um, demonstrations at like at malls, and then one would grab the mic and like beatbox and say, "Hey, the people actually like this." Like, "Yo, okay, now we'll just we just rap whatever was like." popular rhyme from the US at that point. And then I remember like when I started, you know, hearing me write my own thing, like, oh, okay, cool. That's, that's not, that's not bad. And like, oh, yeah, we can make a whole show just on, on this, you know? And the one of the first two was like from a crew called Jamrock Crew. And then um, I remember Caramel uh, came with this, uh, this name, Chilcon, the Chill Convention. It's like a thousand points in Scrabble for that name. <laughs> and, um, and, and then we, we met this this white boy by the name of uh, Michael Hatting. And we went to his house and he was like, yo, this like this will be no big dope name, will be Black Noise. So it was a white brother that suggested the name. And um, we were like, yo, because of the political, for me, the political thing was like, yo, dope, this is a dope name, Black Noise. I mean, we perceived as colored, but like our thinking is on like black consciousness. So, okay. And then we stuck with it and ironically, Caramel and White Boy then left and formed their own crew and we insisted we keep the name. Initially, we're just like, we're going to form something that doesn't really exist, you know? And that's how it came about, an extension of the b-boy era. Like, okay, now we're going to rap as well. And, and, and we, 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 always, we always insisted that dance was a part of it, that we had to, they had to be b-boys as part of the show and then like got a DJ and we, and then Black Noise represented all elements of the culture on stage. We'd have like guy doing, which was back then was Falco, um, like live graph on stage and stuff, you know, so that people could see the flag, the entire culture. Then in 1990, Mandela is released from prison. A lot of the violence from the 80s starts subsiding and the country begins its transition into democracy. Another very important thing happens. A group called Prophets of the City releases what's probably the first full yeah. pop album in the country. Yeah. How important do you think that release was for the culture of hip-hop in Cape Town and for you? I knew the, the guys from before then because of the bass and because of teasers and because of the b-boy part of it. Like Shaheen wasn't from the, that same b-boy clique. And Shaheen had a connection through his dad, who was with Pacific, Pacific Express. When it dropped, we were like, we were also at that point recording, but we didn't expect that like, there'd be that advanced that they'd have this album ready and out.
there wasn't like any pretenses about like being from the US. It was like grounded in Cape Town and more so by Dalla Flat. Like that caused, I think people don't realize the stir that caused because the first time we heard us, you know, before that, like everybody who's recording is trying to sound like white Afrikaans. You know, so you never heard a song that was like, I mean, unless you listen to the clips and those type of, which is almost allowed, right? And then like this owns come and they rap about your, what's exactly going on in the communities. And like, so you, you had a, almost like a, like you, you finally got to be able to look at yourself, you know, or hear yourself. And people were almost like in shock. You know, the, especially the older com um, people in the community, because they were like, nah, the sound like, because it was always associated with gangsters, the way that uh, cops was presented, you know, and um, which is ironic because everybody spoke like that every day. It's just now they were heard it and they were like, oh, this is how we sound type of thing, you know. For a lot of people, it was almost denial. And for us, it was like, as our crew, we were like, nah, we can't sound like that because hip hop was always about being different. You know, you had to. You had to have variety, which was dope because you'd have like a performance where there'd be 20 crews, but nobody sound the same, yeah. you know, which is most like the reverse of what's happening today, you know. And so it, it inspired us to create something different and to, to rap about other topics. And our first album, we actually chose, there was one song on there that had like a political connotation, but everything else was like, there was a song about women, there's a song about, you know, women abuse, there's a song about uh, climate change. Like all these topics, other than because when we listen to POCs, like yo, that's based in our community, that's about the so you wanted to be different, yeah. So it, it was dope because it made other people all choose other avenues, you know. So it, it did a lot for, for I think Cape Town, for Afrikaans, more, more than we actually realized at, the, at that point, you know. It's only years later, we're like, yo, this is profound that this was happening back then. The fact that it was pressed, that it was out, that it, you could get a deal doing it, that you, you know, that it was possible. I mean, like because we were sort of performing around the same time as them, and then and then like I actually asked Shay, you know, I was like, yo, and I went to D and because I had, had the magazine, the Juice, um, at that at that stage, and I went to interview them. I was like, yo, like, like real realistically, is this something like I mean, you know, I'm a teacher. Like, is this something that that you think? Because we are, we are on the verge of signing a deal, do you think it's realistic? And I, I remember both Shaheen and D saying like, "Nah, my bro, keep your day job, my bro. This is cack." This I was like, "Yo," <laughs> and and I mean, not only them, but Lonster and like um, Steve Gordon. So there were people to go to because they were the first to do it that you could get a, a honest answer. And that's the other thing about people about like the scene now is they don't realize that there was this communication. Because people's idea was like useful in competition with each other, which is, I mean, the competition was you performing. And it, because of the b-boy history, it's like a battle. But it's, like, it's not that you were, you know, there wasn't beef. It was just like you doing your thing, we doing our thing. Let's see how, how far we can get, you know. And then my crew, once I told them, they were like, nah, Kiki, let's just, you know, we don't want to get this far and then not sign a deal and not. And I think within like maybe three years after signing the deal, the, the, the crew were like, oh, fuck this shit. This is, this is it. And so the first Black Noise crew, only myself and two other guys, uh, Marlon and Waddle, like stayed. And then Waddle left us after a short while. Because we were like, we were older. And like, we were also like, one guy was at Staff Marine, one guy was studying um, mechanical engineering, another guy was at uh, 
UCT. So people were sort of on that verge of, like, you know, the, their life was going to about to happen. You know, they were studying, they're almost done. My case, I was already teaching. And so the that album, it sort of forced you to make a choice. Like, is this really what you want to do? Almost like because of that, that album, Blackness is always in the shadow. Because in our minds, we didn't see ourselves as a as a, a rap group. Like we saw ourselves as a as a like a hip hop group. Like we're pushing the culture. And so our focus was never like, yo, be the best MC type of that wasn't never the focus. It's like how do you push the entire hip hop culture? In nineteen ninety two, Black Noise releases its first album. An interesting time I think the country was transitioning, almost completed transition into into democracy. Business and political elite are sort of negotiating the future of this country. Yeah. A lot of the music that comes out of the time is a reflection of that. You then make this bold decision that you don't know a few months later. You decide not to be a teacher anymore. Like the, the deciding fact is my dad was approached by like British soccer soccer clubs to play, to leave, you know. And he chose to stay. So he, he chose to marry my mom and stay in South Africa. And is always in the back of his mind and our mind, like, what if he, maybe I probably wouldn't be around if he left. My question was like, how do I, um, will, will I be in the same situation? Will I be like, yo, I should have done this or, you know, and so, at the, you know, the other thing that's at the back of this is also, I, I, had, I had written to, <laughs> I've written to Word Up magazine. I used to read Word Up magazine <laughs> and, and I put my name in the pen pal section. And so people were like sending me like gangs of letters from all, all from the US, right? Because of that. And in one of those letters was like these photocopies of like blacked out through whitewash and the ISIS papers. And I was like, like this is the information I've been looking for my entire life about black people's contribution to civilization. I'm like, damn. And so that impacted on me as like, well, I can't be teaching this other crap to these kids, right? And so that was almost the deciding factors. Like, why well, I was like, yo, I'm out. And I, I remember standing in the class with the kids and I gave them my, um, almost like my situation. I put it on the board. I was like, this is what I'm confronted with. And like, what would you do? I asked the kids. And out of like, I think it was 30 some of almost 40 kids. Like only four or five of them were like, yo, we'll follow our heart. I was like, there's something wrong with the education system if like it's at this age is deciding now nah, they're going to they're gonna do something just for the money. I was like, yo, what's wrong with it? With, with these lighties, right? But then I was realizing that if I don't go, I'd be a contradiction to, I'll be one of the, the, the many examples to them of someone not following their passion or following their heart, but like doing whatever it takes to get a salary, right? And then I was like, yeah, well, that's it, I'm out. And, and so, yeah, so I left. And, um, but I mean, like I said, it was also like I was reading Black, I was reading um, Steve Biko's, um, autobiography and I was reading Malcolm X's autobiography it's all like copied versions of, of it it was like illegal in the country because this is still, still doing apartheid right and I'm like the more I'm like I'm reading this and I'm sitting in the class reading this while the kids are doing their work and I get up and I'm teaching and, and like the contradiction is stark I'm like I'm teaching like Simon van der Stel and that to the light <laughs> and I'm reading this I'm like no I can't keep doing this this is just you know I'm like what does what Biko call it? The, the black upholders of white supremacy, right? And I'm like, peace, I'm out. And like my mom was like, ah, you know, because parents are always worried about your future. 
my mom was like, if you leave, you're paying rent. You, I'm not, you're not living here for free. I was like selling scrap, like changing bottles, whatever it took. You know, te teachers would pay crap. But I worked out a, a technique that would like benefit me. I, I call it like the mathematics of survival, right? Like how do you pay rent? How do you feed yourself? Like how do you get that amount of money every month that you need to survive? So I worked that out mathematically. And that mathematics of survival like extended into like performances. Like how many shows do you need to get? What do you do with that money once you get it? Like how do you reinvest into so you can make more money? You know, and so... And and I think if I'm, if my folks didn't say check you, <laughs> you're gonna pay rent, you're not gonna just chill, then I wouldn't have worked out that skill. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, so so making the choice was was difficult, but like once I made it, it was like you know like that 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 scene in the Matrix where they unplug that dude. It's like that because we don't realize how stuck we are, mm. and we don't realize the, all our potential actually. All of that then was put into black noise you know like once we we do a show like we'd add like photocopies of the groups like a picture with our details on and we, we were probably the first group to do that so that like you go to kids on the cape flats house and they in their in their room they'd be like they all these international artists and black noise and the impact it had on the kids because yeah. years later when i like meet these kids and they're like, you know, when you when you left, you made us. We followed what you were doing, and we then we realized it was possible. Around the same time, we did this incredible interview, you and Black Noise on SCBC Two. It was around ninety three, ninety four, and you explain your role as a b boy is to promote education in a community, and you distinguish education from what you call Eurocation. <laughs> what is Eurocation? It's what being fed to black people everywhere in the world, or people just generally. It's a European base that the minority on the planet used to give the impression that they're the majority. I mean, I picked up on this uh, uh, when that when they sent me that information, I immediately was like, oh damn, like every perspective is always from the European perspective when it comes to education. So it can't be education. Like it's one person's, one side of the story. For me, education would be more inclusive of like the global story. You know, like every community around the world would be represented in that story, not just the Europeans, you know. And so, so I, I use that a lot. I mean, even in, in Europe, I'd be, be on stage and saying that and people are like, what do you mean? Like if you're in Sweden right now. And then when you break it down, they're like, oh, damn, this is what the immigrant community is faced with in our community. You know, they're having to learn our story only like we're not even really wanting to know about the and um yeah i mean i still we still do that with the the wood they you know they, we challenge the education systems at the school and get like to speaking in cups especially in the western cape get like this to feel a sense of pride in speaking that way you know when they when they exposed to the history they 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 get that sense of pride you can't just tell them you speak cups you, you need to be proud you need to actually like say why and like what the history is that brought that language about and now they and like the kids who take this class they also oh, okay yeah it's this isn't the boers language which is what they offer i mean that's what they say in south africa afrikaans is the boers language right but it's not ways of and then with us also like we create these you know booklets and opportunities for us to write in cups and to I mean the play and all of that stuff i find it interesting that pre-94 and post-94 you defy the apartheid racial categories 
in athletics and you refer to yourself as black. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think it's because of like the, the black consciousness that I was reading. But you know, all at all all the while, like people who were like staunchly black conscious were like, yo, Emil, how can you use this terminology of color? And I was like, yeah, how do you lead people back to themselves if you don't use this terminology? This is how they're being seen. I am proud of Africa and being black. I get tired of coconuts that act whack. I am proud of Africa and being black. Because the, the illusion of what colored is and what mixed race is versus who's uh, Tosa, Zulu, Sutu is also just like a, another box, right? That's also fabricated. And so that came up in the process. Um, but it was, it was a hell of an eye-opener. Um, so the black consciousness has sort of layers. And it was the same in the U.S. Like light-skinned light black folk get a bit further because of being light-skinned. I mean, it's, it's why, it's why the, the, the industry chose Bob Marley over Peter Tosh. You know what I mean? It's why, <laughs> and this is going to sound fucked up, but the, it's why the Antwerp is the most be the, the best-known Cape Flat gangster <laughs> in the world. is because it's palatable. Like, white people, I mean, same with Johnny Clegg. Not that they're not good musicians or artists. Why the white world likes controlled version of what they... You know, again, Elvis, like rock was black music, so it's controlled version of blackness, you know. So yeah, black consciousness was a hell of an eye-opener to, to me. And I mean, I still consider myself as like black, you know. But like, I think that title is nuanced. And people need to be, be allowed to expand on that history. Like, I mean, even the same with African. African, for me now, is synonymous with human, because like, that's where... Like humanity began, as far as I'm concerned, on the planet, you know, all this DNA is from, from here, from Africa. In 1994, black noise is heard by more and more people across the world. You then raised money to attend the Universal Zulu Nation anniversary in the USA, hosted by Africa Pambata. You meet people that influence your music and your thinking. A tribe called Quest is there, Public Enemy is there, and many others. You then asked to speak about what's happening in the country. This was 1994. After you speak, someone puts up their hand and asks you, why do you sound more like F.W.D. <laughs> than Nelson Mandela? How do you respond to this? I, I was, first of all, I was shocked. I was like, what the f <laughs> But then, then I, when I thought about it, I was like, yo, that's true. You know, like how we sound, obviously it's because of Afrikaans, like will be more than, more like F.W. As I was like, after laughing, I trying to explain what would influence it. But by, by that time, I still didn't know that Obviously, Afrikaans um, was the origin of this language. So I was, you know, putting it into that context and trying to explain that to them. And it's difficult for them to get it because of, you know, like the, there's a different history in, in the U.S. But the central conversation, like, always came back to, like, the black consciousness side of things. And that's when I first started also to expand that view of, like, blackness in South Africa and, like, why that experiences are all so different. Like even even initially with hip hop, just to give an example, like we so we so insular that we were thinking that everybody understood what we're talking about. Like the first time we did a library tour in year in in the Western Cape, get to the library and like you know hip hop is blah 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 blah. These are the elements that make up hip hop culture. My kids were like, "What? No man, what are you talking about?" And then so now you 
because that's been your lens, you're like, oh, damn, wait, let me, let me sh do like, like now you, the teacher comes in, you're like, yo, hip hop's made up of these things. Now you do a demonstration. This is uh, MCing. This is DJing. This is, oh, okay. Because, you know, because you're living it, you don't realize people don't know what you're talking about. So you have to break it down. You have to do like a demonstration. And so because of that, we were, we started doing demonstrations. You know what I mean? So now after the example you give, next time I go back to the US, I actually mention that. You know, like, yo, people hear me speak. Like, I, this is how I speak. So I don't know how I sound. So when you hear me, you obviously, you think, yo, I can't do my sounding like he's black. I can sound like this twang, like he's almost like from the Netherlands and shit. Right? And like, they, yo, that's too. So now conversation about historically, what caused this to, to happen? And like now they're like, we explain like we're your community. So like now this is the physical divides that exist in Cape Town. Like this community has been forced together and then there's like freeways and train lines and then there's a black community and then there's another freeway and then there's a white community physically separate from, they're like, oh shit, we didn't know that. You know what I mean? So each of those conversations like actually, actually expand my like explanation of things so that people actually understand the history that, that caused why, why I sound this way, you know? It was kind of, def it, I felt like deflated. I was like, fuck, I don't sound like, <laughs> I was like, what it was to sound like F.W. the Clark, you know? But yeah, it was a Musa eye-opener, yeah. It's been about 30 years since Black Noise released its first album, and you've continued to play a central role in hip-hop culture in Cape Town in particular. Where do you think hip-hop in the city is at this point? Yeah, uh, right now I feel like the Afrikaans uh, MCs are becoming more like confident in their own their own uh, way that that they perform and in the the dissection of their language and the the level is fucking amazing. I feel like there's a there's a missing element, right? The desire to to leave needs to be amplified. I think once they start leaving and performing internationally, they will have a different, like the same way that I have a different view of, of us, they will also start changing their perception of Cape Town. And I, I feel like once they do that, then they will see like there's, a, there's the culture and then there's the economics. And if they want to survive just on being MCs, they have to transition between being almost cultureless and being commercial artists. And I feel like in the case of Dreamman's Cup, in the case of Kanye Mavi, in the case of Sounds of the South, these are all like Klosa uh, uh, MCs. They are at the moment actually touring uh, Sweden. So when you do that, you realize the economic value of what you do, what you have. The only way that and it's not just hip-hop. The only way that this community in Cape Town or wherever the, they find themselves um, will have an easier route is if they... And this is a tough one. It's almost like you need to be a fucking... Uh, what do you call it? Social worker first. Before you can... Because you, you're almost telling your community that they, they need to have their money rotating their community first. for them. And it's on all levels, whether you're a movie producer or like... All of that depends on your community's ability to actually support you, you know? And this is the thing that people don't realize, realize even about rap. Um, Shaheen, Shaheen's Muslim. 
of prophets of the city, right? Um, Imam Adams is Muslim. Lukman, Tali Peterson, uh, youngster. That community has a history of understanding economics and understanding how the money works. And so they've been able to so they able to support the best-selling author, Yusuf Daniels, Muslim guy. Because that, that community supports, they understand their financial power. You know, and I didn't realize like, yo, there's something about this 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 I mean I look at those artists, I was like, yo, this community actually puts their money into this, into the artists. And so until like the the cops or the 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 other parts of the culture realize this and, and again nationally also because nationally we it's not only religion but it's also race people buy according to like that accent of mine <laughs> people like yo I even listen to this dude he sounds like that you know what I mean and so and unfortunately that's the dilemma that the party uh, put upon us you know that people don't necessarily just buy people buy bringing all of the baggage of the past with them Emil Top five hip-hop practitioners. Yeah, damn, you're putting me on the spot. Dude. <laughs> the top five. Um, Kanye Mavi, definitely. The stuff I've seen of uh, Jerome Rex. They mean Jitsvanger, Sounds of the South. I've been watching the stuff that they're doing. I mean, there's obviously the ones on the ground, like Cream and like Isaac, and those are the ones that like, for years have been holding the dance. So, you know, Colin was dispelled that, but I, I know that's a specific group of people support as far as support wise is concerned. I mean youngster's fucking amazing. He's improved from when he started out to like now. He's just like a, a soul soul like standing out like internationally actually. There's the I mean this lighty, it's Matthew Joyner, that's not and crowbars. Yeah, lighty from Parkwood. So there's like I, I, I occasionally get exposed to like the new ones like I was hoping to go watch last night. This lady that was working with us as well, he apparently killed at the freestyle battle, um, ecstasy. And then I mean, I mean the, the the old heads, like I still I still think Shaheen is of POC is like a massive icon as far as like way being way ahead of his time with like what he was saying. This has been Voices of the City and I'm your host, Minhaj Gina. This episode is produced by Amina Deka Asma and Volume. Join us next week for another episode where another voice of the city will continue to take us on the journey of exploring race, history and resistance through hip-hop in Cape Town. Volume.